It's a crowded stage. Um, huddled together. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to kick off just getting some first initial thoughts from the panellists, perhaps ask a few questions, and then we're going to throw it open to you. So please um, have your questions ready. And um, we've only got about an hour or so, so we're going to be... Um, Three, four, fast or something. I'm going to start with Lindsay Hilson, please, Lindsay. Thank you, Charlie. I spent much of last summer in Europe following refugees from Greece up through Macedonia, Serbia, Hungary, and to Austria. And I have never received as much abuse as I did that summer for, a sto for stories that I had done, online abuse. Um, Twitter, Facebook, and so on. It was, it was fascinating. The, the main abuse which came on Twitter um, was it, something that went like this. We know that all of these migrants are young men, but you're showing women and children. <laughs> so this reminded me of a friend of mine who used to work in Northern Ireland. He told me the story of a, of a riot and a cameraman filming and a woman tugging at the cameraman's sleeve saying, you're filming things that aren't happening. <laughs> <laughs> and after that, the abuse got worse. Not of me, that doesn't matter, but of the migrants and refugees saying, I hope those children drown and they should send those boats back and tip them over. And I thought, God, those of us who spend a lot of time covering war are used to this idea that you have to dehumanise the enemy. Because soldiers can't kill unless the enemy is not human. So that's why you know, cockroaches or vermin or gooks or whatever the word is used at the time. But that was what they wanted. They, they were, these people were very alarmed by the humanising of what they saw as a mass. And so that was obviously what was important for us in our reporting. It was very important to to make these stories human and to not talk about masses. And actually, one of the things I'm very proud of, I'm not often proud of my journalism, but I did not use a single watery metaphor. <laughs> not one. I had no tides, I had no waves, I had no surges, I didn't even have a trickle. <laughs> and that was for a reason. So, obviously, that thing of humanising is, is really important. But because you think you want to tell those human stories, and some of those stories were extraordinary, that doesn't mean that I know what the policy should be. And it doesn't actually mean that I... Um, it doesn't mean that I'm telling you what I think the policy should be. I know... I'm not an idiot. I wasn't born yesterday. I know that all of Syria can't come to Europe. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't tell those extraordinary stories. It also means... You have to be sharp on this story. You know, I, was early, I was in Libya at the detention centre in Misrata earlier in the year, in April, and a um, young man comes to the front and wants to talk to me. I say, oh, where are you from? And he says, oh, I'm from Somalia. I say, oh, yeah. Hey, what's your name? Wisdom Okeke. I say, oh, that's interesting. Somali, somebody from Somalia with a Nigerian name. You know, you've got to, you don't accept what everybody says. I presume everybody, Charlie didn't actually tell everybody to turn their phones off. Of course, you should turn your phones off. I've turned mine off already because otherwise wisdom will call. <laughs> he called yesterday, so maybe not today. But, you know, wisdom is Nigerian. He 
left his country. Oh, he's given me 20 different reasons why he left his country. I mean, you know, he was afraid of Boko Haram. Then I asked where he's from. I said, oh, that's interesting. That's not an area where Boko Haram are active at all, is it? Oh, okay, Mama. Um, <laughs> and so we go on. And then I said, why, um, what do you know about Europe? And he had a little think about it. And he said, well, two of my favourite Europeans are the Pope and the Queen in all of her regalia because I saw her at the opening ceremony of the Olympics on television. And so I laughed, and you know, I thought, Wisdom's actually one of the funniest people I've ever met. That doesn't mean he has the right to come to this country, or to Italy, where he has ended up. Of course, I spent many months, after he escaped from the Miserata Detention Center, I was forever telling him not to get on the boats and telling him he might drown. You know, this is a difficult journalistic thing. On the one hand, of course, I wanted to give him a camera, and on the other hand, my editor told me I couldn't do that, it was unethical, so I didn't. Uh, but the other part of me saying, you know, don't do it, because I really was worried he would drown. And um, so then he says, well, what do you expect me to do? And that's what the Gambian, Bubakar said that to me as well, because uh, I did a whole thing, but you know, you really shouldn't come, and blah, 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 being a responsible human being. And he said, I am, I am the only hope of my parents. I cannot go back. And I thought, actually, you know, that's true. What do we, what do we say? They're supposed to go back through the desert? What, walk, turn around, go back? It doesn't make any sense. The policy doesn't make any sense. But that doesn't mean that I know what the policy is. And I think that there is a problem. You know, most people in this room are, I would imagine, bleeding heart liberals like me. And maybe the people we're not humanizing are the people who are afraid. And they have reason to be afraid. They have lots of reasons to be afraid. People are afraid of the other. People are afraid of, you know, a, a thing of foreigners. They're afraid of their lives changing. And we talk about this as being the biggest migration since World War II, but I think that there's a bigger context which we're not putting it in, and that is, this is the, this is the story of the human race, isn't it? It's a story of migration and movement and change. I was, on the way here, I was reading a poem by... James Fenton called Wind, which if Charlie lets me at the end, I will, I will read, because, because poets always get it better than journalists. And it's about, it's about this. It's about how the rumour comes over the hill, and like the chaff, we were born in the wind, and it's about the one brother who goes this way and the other who goes that way, and how languages rose and divided. This is the story of the human race. So no wonder people are afraid, because we think history is something that happens somewhere else. It happens in Syria. It happens in Rwanda. But what this story is a really big bit of history, and it's happening here now. And maybe that is why it's so compelling to report and so difficult to get right. Great. Thanks very much, Lindsay. Matthew. Um, actually, just to pick up on what Lindsay was saying there, um, you may remember several years ago that awful um, moment when a boat went down off the island of Lampedusa, just very close to that island, um, and uh, 366, mostly Eritreans, uh, died, they drowned. Um, uh, and I, I remember one of the news editors at the time saying, um, uh, but we've done this story before. Um, <laughs> uh, that was before the numbers got quite so big, admittedly, but even so. But um, the reason for telling that story is um, uh, at the gates of the refugee centre um, on the island there, um, the next day when um, several Eritreans who already lived in Europe and, and were European citizens arrived to see 
if there was any news of their relatives who they knew were on that boat, there was a man called Alem living there who's in his mid-50s and he'd been living in Germany since the early 80s. He himself, his parents had um, helped him out of Eritrea back when he was a young boy because he had been associated with the government and all sorts of political change came along and his parents said, it's no longer safe for you here. I said to him, how did you get to Europe? And he said, I got on a plane, it was a lot easier then. <laughs> um, but he was there to find out if his brother Bimyet was still alive and his brother Bimyet was, of course, not alive. And um, just as a, a sort of follow-up on that, I, I think I'm right in saying, I haven't followed it up recently, but the bodies of all 366 people who died in that, many of them who still haven't been identified, are all still buried in Sicily um, and they cannot be repatriated to their home because of problems with the Eritrean government because of problems with the European authorities because of... uh, Alem couldn't even get his brother's body to Germany so um, that that was a tragedy Um, and, and again to follow up on what Lindsay said, I mean it was really interesting September 4th last year when you will remember that that um a uh, vast number of people, over a thousand, who walked along the motorway from Budapest to the Austrian border and then beyond because they got fed up of waiting. Um, w- when I was tweeting that and um, uh, telling their stories, I got actually overwhelmingly positive reaction. It was really interesting. I got a lot of positive reaction. And I would say 80% of the tweets that I got back and then the retweets and everything were positive. Um, and then three weeks later on the island of Lesbos, um, where uh, actually the scenes were far more horrific than uh, a group of people walking along the side of a motorway, um, people arriving off uh, on, on dinghies, wet and cold and shivering. It was really, it felt like the first day that summer was ending and the chill of autumn was beginning. Um, and you could feel the coldness in, in their palms when you, when you shook their hands. So we'll all have had experience of that. Um, this was three weeks later. And overwhelmingly, the responses to my tweets were negative. 80%, maybe 70%, I'd say, were having a go at me in the way that Lindsay has described. And then a few months later in Paris, after the terrible attacks, I had a few of the people who I had engaged with on Twitter who had been critical of what my reporting was, and they said I was encouraging these people to come over. And a couple of them came back to me after the Paris attacks when I was tweeting from Paris, and they said, we hope you're glad, Uh, we hope you feel satisfied about what you have done. I apparently had caused the Paris attack. You and me together, you and me together. I think probably all of us on this panel. But that, to me, was fascinating. And actually, uh, I, I, and I think we probably all do in a certain extent, um, I, I try and engage with the people who have that because I do think they're scared. I do think they have reason to be scared. Um, we, we grow up and, and live and, and work in multicultural societies where even if we can't excuse those viewpoints... Um, uh, you know, perhaps we, we can understand them because we meet lots and lots and lots of different people. Um, but if you're tucked away in a corner of the world, and, and many of these people were not from Britain, they were from all over, where actually you're living in, in, in very um, uh, homogenised societies, then, then perhaps you don't have contact with the other and therefore you are afraid of them. I'm not excusing it, but um, it is an interesting um, task to try and understand it, perhaps. And do you think, Matthew, that, I mean, obviously you've covered other humanitarian disasters like Haiti, for example. Do you think that this particular story has gone beyond the bounds of the normal sort of, you know, there's a disaster, poor people? Someone, you know? um, I've got on, on, on my Twitter profile, I have, a, I, have a, I have a backing, which, so you've got the picture, and then I have the backing, and the backing is me holding, um, no, the backing is a, is a um, Haitian girl, five years old, holding my microphone and my, my recording device and interviewing me. 
Um, and during the whole refugee crisis, someone tweeted um, something uh, unmentionable here about me and look at his bloody photograph there and he supports these people. Um, and I said, not that it's relevant um, yeah, that was a photograph taken. Uh, it, it was more than that. It was all about inviting these people over. And I said, not that it's relevant, because I don't support your views in any way at all, but the girl that you're referring to is a Haitian girl who was, days after the earthquake, had destroyed her house, etc., etc., etc. And I got an apology, because the person said, oh, that's all right then. So, um, she's not here. <laughs> so she's, she's not, not here. here. That's fine. <laughs> she's still black, but I'll let her live over there. You know. So, um, so, so I think those are different stories, but I, I, I think... The point about this one, surely, is it, it comes at a time when there's increasing nationalism with a small N, mostly, in Europe. Um, it comes at a time where there are, not just in our country, lots of people are concerned about the, 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 the European Union and, and the politicians are feeding off that and, and, and the, the, the populism that comes with that is encouraging to people, people to think about the other um, in not terribly positive ways. Um, I've always thought, I mean, I started working in Jerusalem um, several years after 9-11, and it always felt to me that um, uh, through my interactions with friends back here, when I was living there seeing a a sort of, um, you know, a conflict right in front of me all the time, it always felt to me that 9-11 had changed things because people in this country, in America, in western parts of the world, if you like, were starting to view Muslims in a different way right. um, because of what happened there. Um, and, and I think all of those currents come together in this country, the Brexit debate, the, the, all of it comes together in a really nasty moment. Um, and then suddenly you have a load of people flooding across the borders and that, I, I think everything just starts to coalesce in, in a way that I think is, is quite worrying actually at the moment. Yeah, and quite unprecedented as well. Yasmin, that, that's sort of two views from... Uh, front line, as it were. What's your perspective um, thinking, you know, from, a, uh, from London, as it were? Well, I mean, I, I want to go back to uh, what Lindsay said, that perhaps what hasn't been communicated nearly enough in the, in the media is that this is an eternal human story. People move. Goodness me, Europeans took over continents... They've taken over continents, Australia, New Zealand, um, South America, North America. And sometimes I think we fail to cast this as part of the wider human story. It's hard, of course, if you're doing the immediate news reporting, but perhaps the more thought-out um, um, you know, think pieces need to emphasize that why is it all right? I still have a huge number of friends who will say to me, oh, um, we're thinking of buying a house in, in Cape Town. Uh, you know, we're going to have a holiday home in Italy. Uh, our son is going to university in uh, Florence because it's cheaper over there. The mindset that it's okay to do that if you come from the privileged world, and I don't think it is now only the white world, it's those of us who live in the privileged world feel we have the right to move but others who need it more must be denied it, and I think that's something um, we need to think about. But the other thing is that the the Islamist terrorism has made it more difficult to argue the way one could once upon a time, because there is a problem, and therefore we are, those of us who want to do the right thing, that refugees should be given a home, 
Um, and this, in my view, is as big a disaster as what started to happen um, uh, in, this sort of in Germany and across Europe. Um, there is a problem, and I understand the anxiety. But, I mean, sometimes I, I, got, I had an email yesterday or day before saying, you are the worst kind of Muslim because you appear to be like us. So I tweeted today to say, shall I grow a beard then? Will that make you more comfortable with somebody like me? So you can't win on this. If you, are, you appear assimilated, then you've, you're probably a, a, a terrible uh, you know, uh, enemy within who will never be detected because I'm obviously doing things that they can never catch me for. And then on the other hand, but you know, just concrete examples of unfairness. The terrible things that happened in Cologne were right to highlight, and I think they were done very sensibly and fairly by uh, our uh, media outlets. But two days, I think, or three days later, in Stockholm, men with balaclavas, two to three hundred fascists in Stockholm, rampaged through the streets and beat up refugee children. How many of you knew that story? It didn't appear on our front pages. It didn't take over the, you know, all our airwaves. What's wrong with the Swedes? What is happening to them? Is it their education? Is it their upbringing? You know? And that kind of thing, I think, creates the font of anger within particularly second and third generation uh, migrants, and they're not all Muslims either, which just makes them feel, and rightly, how is this fair? How is this fair? Um, and the final points I want to make is that one of the challenges I have, I find, is how do I accept and talk about really very openly and in an unafraid way the problems of integration, the problems of terrorism, some of the fact that some of the refugees that want to come here may indeed be bad, bad men and women, whilst at the same time arguing absolutely for the right of refugees to have the chance to live. And in Lincolnshire three weeks ago, which was very interesting, I was warned, I was on question time um, um, three weeks ago in a place near Boston which has been very hostile to immigrants for a very long time because Eastern Europeans have come in and taken all the jobs. Um, and I expected, and you know, Margaret Thatcher was very popular, all of that. Overwhelming, I don't know if you saw it, overwhelmingly the audience in a totally unexpected way was absolutely for these Syrian refugees. And the number of ordinary people from this country and elsewhere who've gone to Calais, to everywhere. So in a way, I'm very relieved that the media coverage hasn't totally dehumanized these poor people that human beings are behaving like often good human beings do. But having said that, I don't know what's going to happen. Either we have to decide that they can die, and that's it, that's the calculation, or we are going to have to do something more than just write and tell stories about them. Um, I don't think our country is doing enough. Very briefly, do you think that the media coverage, it's difficult to generalise, but do you think that 
um, that has helped with the debate and helped you know, perhaps policymakers to do the right thing? Or do you think it's actually been, in a sense, counterproductive? That, you know? I think television has been very uh, effective and affecting, right. uh, which it does very well. It does the human stories very well. I think the press, as ever, you know, the, the best-selling papers are on the right, and they're still <coughs> talking in terms of... I mean, it's horrendous what the right-wing press sometimes does. Um, not just dehumanize them, but, but make them into this, this unnamed threat. Um, so it's a mixed bag, but I think, um, on the whole, I think, especially the broadcast media, has done extremely well. And I, I, I'm, I was a judge on the RTS Awards, and some of the, 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 the um, films were fantastic. But what the effect is, they, people feel helpless. Right. And I don't know what one does with that. Yeah, okay. <coughs> Rosalind, you've done some terrific stuff, in a way quite different to you know, the other two broadcasters here. You did them, you reported from Curl, you also did that stuff from the, the camps on people being, um, women being um, sexually harassed and so on. And, and of course you work for BuzzFeed. So has it been completely different for you? Um, to a degree. I think um, I, while I, just to sort of bounce off that, I think uh, television coverage and the on-the-ground coverage by um, us as reporters has been um, very accurate and fair and we're telling these human stories in a way that we need to be telling them. But I also think there's a massive blind spot currently in British media where we are not necessarily taking that story to the people. And by that I mean um, bouncing off a story that I had to debunk the other day about a false case, um, about a case of a uh, rape in Berlin. And it was a story that um, was actually completely um, false in the end, but what had happened was this story had trickled up, weirdly enough, by a Russian reporter in Berlin who had made this sort of two, three-minute video clip and had based it on... Um, no real uh, facts, um, but what, he, what was smart in his own way anyway was that this fake story was put in this sort of very, uh, you know, this, this snappy video, and that was then shared on a Facebook page where it was viewed, I think, at least three, four million times. Um, and this was on a page that was followed by several million people too. And I think what we're missing is that although we have this great... Uh, commitment to telling these refugee stories and their, the reality of what they're facing, we are not taking these, these stories are not being shared by most of the public on social media and that's the reality. I think there are Facebook groups now, we wonder why reporters get a lot of hate on Twitter saying, you know, this isn't real, why are you reporting on this? this it's mostly men, this, that and the other. It's because it's dumbfounding to me how many of these right wing, you know, far right or whatever, these these aimed stories are being shared. Every day I get alerts and emails of stories about refugees, and every single time the top five stories are from Breitbart, from, you know, these, these stories are shared massively on these Facebook pages, on these private groups. And we, I think the big problem is, is that we're putting these stories out there, but we're not taking it to the people necessarily. And I know that's, it's not an easy thing to solve, and we're not just expecting to suddenly have, have a video shared 
uh, millions of times on Facebook, but there's, there's something there that that's the reason their stories are being the most read, most talked about, leading the sort of, I hate to say it, but yeah, leading the conversation nowadays with this constant negative feed, tweets every day. I, get the, I got the same thing when I was reporting on the ground and the refugee crisis end of last year, it was, you know, why, like, the constant thing, because I did a couple of stories specifically focused on the women and children, saying this is the reality of what it's like to be pregnant on the refugee crisis, this is, what, this is what's happening, and every single comment under my piece was, you know, well, it's not mostly women, it's not mostly children, this is all lies, um, and as UNICEF have later pointed out and said at that time as well, that actually the women and children were arriving later, and yes, although it was mostly men to start with, they are coming later, but that information is not being talked about in these, on social media, that information... So there's only so much we can do as reporters to stress and to talk about the, the reality of it all. So, um, yeah, I think uh, Facebook views now versus TV views, I think that's a, the biggest concern, I think. Do you, do you think, though, that obviously with BuzzFeed, generally speaking, it's a younger audience? Mm -hmm. I've always imagined somewhat more or relatively liberal audience as well. I mean, do you think you're tapping into... Are you getting a response from those people? I mean, Yes, I think, yeah, it's, it's fairly left-leaning. We're mostly a uh, female audience as well. We, um, I think hopefully we are... Uh, you know, the big thing with BuzzFeed is that, yes, I mean, it probably doesn't jump to people's minds straight away as being a go-to place for world news or go-to place for the refugee crisis. But what we try to do every day is do a mixture of on-the-ground reporting, on-the-ground tweeting, taking the story out there, as well as looking at ways that we can bring that story in an accessible way, not in a patronising way, but just in a way that's broken down and saying, this is what's happening, everything you need to know about this, this particular story. Um, I did a story where I, uh, a conversation with a refugee who was trying to cross from Turkey to Greece, um, and I did the entire thing based on a WhatsApp conversation I was having with him the entire time. I could have just written it out into a big feature, but actually I, I made it so the conversation was brought up in these little WhatsApp conversations and it was broken down a little bit in an attempt or an effort to uh, bring it in a visual way for our audience to make it relatable, to make it accessible, to make it something that hopefully, as we keep banging on about, that human story really bringing it to them, making it something that they can feel empathy for. And Yeah. yeah. Fascinating stuff. Um, William. Imagery has been so important to this. You know, we've all got, well, so many incredibly moving images that have, we felt were shifting public opinion. What was it like doing the imagery, and how did you respond to it yourself? Um, well, I guess what, in reference to the Adelaide picture, for example, the woman changed the photograph of the young toddler as it was walking to the beach of Turkey. Well, I was asked about a lot about that picture, but for, for example, um, and why did that picture uh, suddenly capture people's interest? And um, I've been asking ask myself the same questions: and why, why in particular, um, why did that capture the imagination in a way which others hadn't? Because the warrants had been going on for quite a few years, and pictures of children had been available. And I think one of the key things in that picture, for example, was that um, it was so incongruous to see a dead father on, on a beach where, um, where, where British or European tourists um, would, would go. So it was, it was a name, the, I can't the name of the town where it actually happened, but it was a place where people could have gone to themselves. And suddenly there was a connection, there was a personal connection made 
uh, people who manifest the connection in a way which they haven't been able to do prior to. Um, and I think that, that's what really made people, made people sort of set up and listen. Um, because suddenly there's no longer the other, as we've sort of mentioned earlier, um, it's no longer this unpronounceable town, um, unpronounceable names. Here we have a little child um, that will reach. So to use that as an example. And your response yourself? I mean, you've, you've, you've actually done that unusual thing as a, as a you know, journalist. You've actually moved on and actually responded in a... Yes, yeah, so um, <coughs> I had what the archaeological um, at the moment clarity was covering the, the Syrian war to been there since 2012 on and off, covering the fighting, because at the time was, was what everyone wanted to see. Um, and after a year and a half going in and out, um, apart from the fact that it was actually terrifying, um, I didn't know what else I could add to the story um, in terms of video pieces or still or stills. Um, and I, I thought there's only seven, there's only so many photographs you can take of someone in 1947 without being flippant, and there's only so many videos you can shoot someone buying in 1947. Um, and it was I was soon after an interview with a lady called Jim Shaka, who was an amazing lady, she had 16 grandchildren. Um, she adopted one of her grandchildren, um, been uh, two of her children were pregnant, and she was looking after them in this little hole in, in Gaza, in Western Turkey. And I sat down with her, uh, with her translator, of course, and the first thing walked to Mark about this was the first time I was interviewing a lady, a woman. That is in uh, very, very difficult in Syria. And this wasn't, um, this wasn't sort of a super conservative uh, lady, this was a woman who lived in the letter. Very similar lives to any one of us. I sat them with her, and first she dropped me um, as much food as she was not her children, which I took because I knew that it would be incredibly offensive not to take that spot that they couldn't really afford to in. She talked me through losing her son, and there's always a lag when we interview through an interview through a translator because because the translation will lag, so they say something, so the translator, and so my reaction, our reaction got delayed, and she said this line uh, where she pulled out a photograph from her breast pocket of her son and she said, this is my son. Uh, when he died, my heart died too. And, um, so in that moment, firstly, see, it's, firstly, what, I mean, journalistically, what a line. So what, what a line. That's, that, that's, that's, that's the top line, as we say in journalism. But at the same time, I thought, wow, this is, this is appalling. Um, and I looked into her eyes, and suddenly, that's the moment of clarity for me. She suddenly became a human being. Uh, not that she wasn't prior to, but before that, just between the men and the boys and the machine guns, suddenly here's a woman um, who was, was doing everything she could for her family. Um, and it was after that that I got back to the Inner Road Charter, it seems after that I got back to the UK, uh, founded a charity uh, called the Syrian Refugee Relief Fund, um, which I've um, That itself is quite interesting um, because it allows me to cross the line. So now I'm just like, what am I when I go to places? You know, am I, I mean, I don't know, I've, tried, I've been back in the video versus the places where there are different things going on, covered various aspects of refugee crisis and lawlessness. And um, initially, I, I was concerned that I would go back with a different sort of head on, but I didn't. I went back absolutely as a journalist, and that's where I should be going back. Um, uh, and I'm, just, I'm still very aware that that's where I am. I'm not, I'm not confusing myself as a 
part-time humanitarian or something like that. You, you could be a human being as well. Well, well that's, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, my mentor said to me, it's a human being first, gen and second, which sounds kind of like, what's the tongue about clear, but in actual fact, that really was true, I think. Yeah. I'll just go back to you. To you, Matthew, obviously BBC, you're supposed to be terribly objective, uh, and yet at the same time you're getting, you're getting all this I Twitter, have, I have no Twitter stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but was this, did this one push that a bit? I don't mean literally you want to start a charity like Will has done, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I met this... Um, well, I don't, I don't know where to start on that, because it, I, don't, I, don't see, I don't see any conflict in this. Um, I... And maybe if I'd st- I started in the BBC 20 years ago, maybe if I'd started 40 years ago, I would see a conflict in it. Yeah. Although I think there are plenty of examples of people who, who, who have been doing it far longer than I have who um, uh, don't feel that they have to be detached from human emotion. I, I don't have a, I've never had a problem with, um, Christ, this is just awful, and I need to tell everybody who watches this how awful this is. Um, and maybe what's changed in the last few years through social media is there are more avenues through which I can also say, I really find this bloody awful, and I cried about this today. So, I mean, I've always felt that those sort of lines sit uncomfortably in a television news report, although, again, social media is changing the way, in, you know, um, online media is changing the way in which we report on television and on radio, um, and... People want quotes a more authentic experience. Um, so actually, there are more avenues, I think, in the old traditional broadcast media and in print to actually have those pieces where you say, "This really hit me hard. This really affected me." I don't think it looks so schmaltzy as perhaps it did a few years back. Um, but sure, but that's not really the point, is it? The point is, yeah, we all get upset. What? What the hell? You know. The point is, what should the policy be? So should Angela Merkel have let? a million people come in, because I know perfectly well, so, I, you know, I work for Channel 4 News, I can say what I feel, though I won't say what policy should be, but yes, when I saw people carrying pictures of Angela Merkel on their way up through Hungary to Austria, I felt it very moved, and I felt very admiring of Angela Merkel. Was she right? I don't know. Maybe she was wrong. Because the next time I went, I met a whole bunch of Afghan men who are a bunch of chanters, um, you know, trying to make it in because they said, well, you know, anybody can go to Germany, this is going to be great. And A, they were assholes, and B, they were not the people who this was meant for. So, some of those hard people who said, no, this is wrong, this is going to make more people suffer, maybe they were right. Maybe we were wrong. Us soft-hearted people going around crying over the babies. Maybe we're all wrong because actually it's encouraged more people to come and now they're going to get sent back and, a load of the, and you know, a load of, I've met a whole bunch of Afghans who sold up everything and they will get sent back and they will be destitute so maybe our emotion is actually a problem well I'm not I, no. I, I, don't, I don't think so because I think, I mean I, I met those same Afghans coming along um, several <laughs> weeks later you know that guy? that guy, he was awful wasn't he, he was terrible <coughs> I felt sorry for his wife though um, but um, and, and I, I didn't feel any, well, felt sympathy towards their background sure, and all of that, but I didn't feel the immediate sympathy that I felt towards the Syrian woman that I'd met three weeks earlier who, who, who described um, 
telling her son on the dinghy that, uh, you know, she said, I'll see you in heaven, and she was about to push herself yeah. off the dinghy because she wanted to leave him the best chance of getting across when the dinghy was sinking. Um, they all made it, thankfully. Um, I, I, I don't... I, I, I mean, I suppose there is a question about whether our emotion or when we display our feelings of sympathy towards individuals, does that drive policy? Um, I, I, I suspect... But is the policy it, I, right? I, That's well, the issue. But I suspect it doesn't. But, I, I mean, I'm not a policymaker, so I'm not sitting there thinking, I'm going to temper my reaction to these people because I'm not sure what the policy should be. At that moment in time, there were a large number of um, Syrians coming across um, who desperately needed help. And I think it was right that we were provoking um, an emotion, not deliberately, but just as human beings reporting on something that was happening. We were provoking a reaction that conceivably led Angela Merkel to say, do you know what, this is awful, we have to do something, I have to open the borders. And I'll deal with the consequences later. And then we go back three weeks later and meet the dodgy Afghans and we start saying there's a load of dodgy Afghans uh, coming over. <laughs> we're in a real danger there, though, where you start painting a picture of what is a good refugee and what is exactly. a bad refugee. Yes, exactly. And it's, it's, you can't, that's, that's the big yeah. concern. If you, I'm pretty sure people fleeing, you know, these uh, people from Afghanistan are fleeing terrible circumstances too. And some are, some are. Yeah, but then and as a responsibility... Critical of course, and you should remain critical at all times, of, of course, as a reporter. But then if you start trying to, in your storytelling, paint in a picture of who deserves to be there and who yep. doesn't. That's a, a dangerous ground to Well, play. like my Nigerian. He deserves nothing, but I love him. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you want to come No, no, I, know, I also think, you know, there's, there's um, whether it leads to policy changes or not. I mean, I, uh, Rosalind, I think the other <clears throat> online stuff is also going on. So many young people particularly feel that the anti-refugee, anti-asylum seeker, anti-migrant thing is so awful that they are actually whipping up the good guys to go and do some, you know, go to Calais to help. And, and that really encourages me that in spite of this overwhelming kind of hostility, there are people who are using um, all these um, other ways to get the human thing going. It's not up to us, Lindsay, to decide who is good and who is bad. But what is important is that we tell the story. This isn't about... These people aren't all heavenly creatures. But they still deserve to live. Otherwise, the logical thing we're saying is, they must die. And that is the moral line, I think. Um, and it's very hard. That's very, very hard. Yeah. I and I also cool. thought today's picture... Somebody told me, because I haven't looked at it, is it true that the front page of the Times had the picture of that little boy? Which boy? The junior oh, yeah. jihadi? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, it is. Now, I thought this was <coughs> shocking, actually. We were blessed. Yeah? We, you, why was he not... A, to call a five-year, four-and-a-half-year-old a jihadi, right? And then to show this... Ch- I mean, I'm sorry. You know, there are things that are going on, and immediately the fear factor then builds up immediately. They're all terrorists. They're going to come and bomb us. None of it is easy. None of it is easy. But I think when people are dying, or will die, unless they're given a home, Merkel was right. Okay. Let, let's, let's get some questions from the audience. And I'm going to start over here, just because it's nearest the microphone. Can you put your hands up in the middle, somebody? Can I take this one in the middle there? The woman in the black, she'll be next. Thank you very much for your time. Um, I mean, given the, the conflict in Syria, probably not 
Where's it going, Lindsay? Yeah. Start with the broadcasters. Um, well, disaster fatigue on the heart of the journalists as well. Right. Um, I don't have a, a simple answer to that question. I mean, of course, I believe we just have to keep on trying to tell the story as best we can. And I think one of the really good things is BuzzFeed. And I really liked your idea of doing your thing through, you know, the WhatsApp conversation. I think that there are different ways of, of telling the story, you know, old farts like me have a lot to learn about different ways of, of doing things. But ultimately, the, the most difficult thing, I think, is that I believe in being an eyewitness. And it is incredibly difficult to be an eyewitness in Syria now. Um, if you go in on the government side, as I do, it's very difficult to get access. I mean, I, I push, I push, and I, every time I get something, but not enough. And the other side is so dangerous. Um, it's pretty impossible to go in. So to me, that is the most difficult journalistic challenge, is how do we tell the story when it's so hard to actually be an eyewitness and see it with our own eyes? What about BuzzFeed? Are you bored of this now? <laughs> no, no. I mean, or, we, or more importantly, are your readers bored of it? Um, I mean, we're, no, not, not as such. Uh, we, we do work hard to try and tell stories in new ways and trying to... Uh, again, you know, focus on these personal stories. It's not all, you know, you're not going to suddenly engage thousands more readers through a new format. You can try and you can keep testing new things and you can keep using So uh, a thing that uh, Mashable did actually with the, the Paris attacks, not the same thing, the refugee crisis, but just a smart idea that has been sort of done before where uh, they tweeted out uh, the victims' names and photos and personal information and it was retweeted like crazy. And it's these smaller, seemingly smaller things that I think actually still have a massive impact than, uh, you know, just uh, TV and print reports. Uh, but with that, it's, uh, even with uh, refugees crossing the water and a simple photo and a name of the person, that, again, being retweeted, being on Tumblr and reblogged, it's these sorts of things, telling those stories and going to the places where people are talking about and sharing about it. So I mean, well, one thing which our online people did, which I thought was good, it was called Two Billion Miles. And what we did was we got people to make the choices. So you, know, you are from Aleppo, next door is bombed, you're going to be bombed now, you have a choice. Do you stay where you are? Do you head up to the Turkish border? Do you just, and then whatever choice you make leads you into the next thing. So it takes you into that terrible decision-making process that refugees have to make. And I thought that was actually a very imaginative thing to do, and it, it was very popular online. Mm. Yeah, it's called two... It's, it's re really worth having a look at. It's called Two Billion... Two Billion Miles. Two Billion Miles, yeah. yeah. Do you want to take the question there? Thank you. Come back. Carol, from Birthday College. And I wanted to address my question to Willie, because you both touched on this. I'm um, talking about the French and policy of the Take, take I, think first, and then, yeah. I think that the um, there is a difference between a migrant and a refugee, um, and 
I think you have to be really careful as to who you're describing when you're using the word right minded refugee. So um, I'm in Libya recently, and most of the people in Libya, so I went to, went to a prison where people have been held there, um, mass graves of people that have been washed out, have been buried. They were primarily migrants. Um, I think there was a well intentioned campaign saying refugees are migrants. Um, now, in the Balkans, they are almost, almost certainly refugees, uh, and death almost certainly all Syria, at least the ones I met. Um, and I read your piece, Lindsay, about saying lying about where they've come from, but um, you can quickly ask, look out whether someone's actually really from Syria or not. Um, because Iraqis don't know anything about Syria, they've never been there in many cases. So, in Iraqis, they're from Aleppo. Um, so, really, with a bit of which part, and they just sort of. Yes. So in terms of the language is really, really important and you shouldn't, and, and it's, it was almost, it was, it was well intentioned and I, I back the sentiment that saying refugees are migrants, well actually, the refugees are refugees, migrants are migrants, it doesn't help the people who are reading our articles, seeing our broadcasts, or video pieces, whatever, to, to try and hijack the narrative one direction or the other way to be clear as to what they are. Um, Except for the ones who are sort of both. Well, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, and of course, there's, yeah, always the, there's the complicated there is, ones yeah, in the middle. Yeah, it's absolutely no, it's not black and white, it's yeah. really, really difficult. And you know, because some of them are from Pakistan, it's a dreadful time. Um, anyone saying better life and so on, is it like that's where it gets that's where it gets difficult. But in terms of, I think, typically in, from Libya, they were from Maria, within the Balkans, they were Syrians, absolutely refugees. So that's, I don't know, that's hard. Yeah, yes, I mean, I think we have, uh, it's this collapsing of various narratives that's the problem. The, the Paris bombs were not set off by migrants no. or refugees. They were Frenchmen or Belgium men born and raised there. And I think one of the things that doesn't happen nearly enough is for us to ask questions, how did we produce generations of men, they are mostly men, not all of them, who want to do this to us, rather than you know the the the, the dangerous outsider? Um, and I agree with Lindsay. Sometimes if they're both, they're migrants as well as um, um, refugees. But what I'm worrying about now is now there's this hierarchy where all the concerned people are concerned to help Syrians, but it, trouble is everywhere. There was a bomb yesterday that killed 65 people in a refugee camp in Nigeria. It was even in my newspaper on page 137 or whatever, you know, little thing like that. Parts of Nigeria are becoming so difficult for people because of Boko Haram. You've got um, Eritrea, which now we are becoming aware of, um, you know, gay people in Uganda. I mean, there is, the crisis isn't, and Iraq, which we, are, we have to be responsible for, and Libya, because we are a part of the destabilization process. So where does this, how do we deal with that, that we will have the Syrians, because we are beginning to understand Syria, but the rest be damned? Just, in, just a quick, when I said Libya, I, I was referring to people who were transiting through Libya, just... No, 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 but I'm saying, you know, if... Okay. I'll come to you in a second, but anybody over there? I always feel... No, there's not, all right. Let's come back here. Oh, there is, yeah, there is, sorry. Yeah, go on. For some reason, I feel obliged to go geographically as well as... 
Yeah, you've all said you, you're getting a lot of mm. feedback, but do you ever respond? Block them. <laughs> <laughs> Rosalind? Um, uh, I only respond once or twice, and then, um, and then I, mean, I got loads of flack off a piece I did from Callie, an Airtrain woman, uh, who had some incredible story. She, she still had, uh, her eyes were still kind of red and bloodshot from the, the mace she'd got in the face. Um, she, she cried a lot, which made the piece you know, maybe it's even stronger. Um, but the flat, but I got a good amount of flat saying, you work the Telegraph, which we're signing, we're signing more. Um, <laughs> and what's the piece? I'm not going to watch my piece, that's it. I mean, like, listen to the story and then decide for yourself. I'm not going to say, you should think this. After watching my piece, I can then tell you what to think. I'm, I'm probably one of the few journalists, I'm actually a fan of comments, especially on BuzzFeed. We have a lot of readers who, yes, we get the stereotypical ne negative comments, but actually, a lot of our readers then respond to those comments. And you see all the time on Twitter, um, those usually funny or smart or quips or you know, the fact checking that people do, those screen grabs then go viral. And they are actually what are shared more than you know, these crappy little comments underneath the piece. So actually, I'm, I don't know, I'm probably going to get to grain there, but I'm actually a fan of having them there. Because if you turn the comments off, you're just driving them further away. And you're not engaging with your readers, and I just think that's a, a bad thing. Okay. Well, um, uh, slightly off topic, but when um, uh, I followed the Costa Concordia story for a long time, and on the day that they raised it up like that, I had engineer after engineer after engineer from around the world saying, but what about the tensile strength in this, <laughs> and what about that? So actually, we, we, we went down to the engineers on the dock side, and we asked them all these questions, and they were, oh, we hadn't thought of that. And, and it fed back, and it gave me some interesting journalistic lines. Um, to move back to this topic, I did it actually, I, I, I'm more with Rosalind on this, I, I, I engaged people, maybe I got too, in, too involved myself in, in this particular story over September, October, November. Um, and I engaged with the people who were criticising me and what I was saying, and it was really interesting. Um, quite a lot of them calmed down after being that, engaged. That, that, that I have had that and, and it's really interesting, because they initially send out, you bastard, you, you want us all to be blown up. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And then they explain what they're talking about. And then I say, well, is that really the right way oh, to... God, you know, it takes blah, blah, blah. so much time. I mean, yeah. No, I know it does, but I, get, and I do get too involved. To this is kind of therapy, yeah. isn't it? It's kind of, it is. It's yeah, kind, it's kind of, of therapy. I, you know, I've had a long, I've had 20 hours, and I'm up for another hour dealing with these bloody people. But the, major, <laughs> the majority of them, actually, I found, we ended on a, well, we'll beg to differ. But I felt there had been some dialogue there, and there were other people chipping in on it. And it made me a little more like to... The positive side of comments is that I had people, uh, I had um, an Eritrean guy uh, um, get in contact via Twitter or whatever it was after the piece I just referenced. It was, it was a wealthy, lived in America, very well, done very well. Uh, he wanted to help. Um, and I um, did a woman who was called Baby, again, she's kind of a very typical Eritrean name, apparently Baby. Uh, and I got in contact with um, this guy and he sent us money by Western Union. So, on that occasion, it was worth reading comments. And actually, can I just on say, on, on, 
so September, when people were saying, it's all men, why are you showing all the women and children? Um, and I said, well, it's not all men, because there are women and children here. But I did go to the UN and say, what are your figures for the, the gender divide here? And they said, it's 70% men. So I said, oh, crikey, it's 70% men. So then I started asking people, um, why are there so many men coming across? And, right. and the obvious answer that came through, as we all know, is often men go first. Often societies will only allow the men to go. Um, I met a woman pushing her kids along the side of the motorway on her own. We helped to carry her kids for a bit because they were all exhausted and in tears. And, and, and I said, where's your husband? And she says, he's in Germany. And he'd already gone three months earlier. And he'd got the house and he'd got settled and he'd got the money and he'd got her across. So um, actually, the negative tweeting back to me came in handy and allowed me to inform people and now we see a lot more women and children are coming because they're following the men. Excellent. Can I get a question here? Uh, I should admit I'm also on Channel 4 but I'm also from an organisation, the Ethical Journalism Network. We just got journalists around the world to write a report on migration and what was striking was that so many of them said, we've got this terrible problem in our country about reporting migration. They all seemed to think it was their problem. And I wondered whether any of the panel could tell us what they have noticed about how in other countries they're reporting these issues. Is it different to the way we are reporting it? And what could we as journalists learn about how we should report it from them? Do you watch anybody else's coverage? Yeah. Uh, you must be talking to the other foreign people. I've yeah. talked to Hungarian journalists. Yeah. And um, they have, you know, some of the Hungarians, I mean, because the state TV is very anti-migrant and there's a one TV station which isn't. And I've talked to some of those journalists and they really felt they had a very hard time. There wasn't censorship as such, but it was... It was very difficult, but, I, but maybe one of the problems is that, I mean, look at us all. Where's the Daily Mail? Why, why haven't you got tabloids up here? Do you ask them and they don't come? Or what is it? Bit of both, yeah. <laughs> no, but we, because we need to have these conversations. What's the point? We all talk to ourselves, don't we? <laughs> Sorry. Well, uh, well, actually, it made, me, it made me think, when you made that Daily Mail comment, I thought, OK, well, let's have a discussion about the word migrant. And, and I have been wondering recently, certainly the BBC... Um, maybe I should, this is a terrible admission from a corporate perspective, but I have no idea if we have a ruling on migrant. You do, it says you, you have do, to say yeah. migrant. I've had a big fight okay, with the Okay, so we do. Well, um, I'm not always adhering to that then, um, obviously, <laughs> but maybe it's good that I haven't read the policy. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, this, there's no social media here, is there? Um, uh, but I, I have been wondering, and I'm sure you're going to shake your head on this, but I've been wondering if... Because the word migrant is actually only pejorative because it's been Absolutely. grabbed yeah. by right-wing politicians. And they use it. I, I've been wondering a lot, as the BBC and other organisations use the word migrant, just simply as a descriptive term, does it become less pejorative? And there's a part of me that I, I think it does, actually. I think it is less... Yeah. It's, it's less um, solid a thump in the chest yeah, than it yeah, used to be. Yeah. And also the ownership, sorry, can I just... Yeah. Uh, the ownership, you know, when we came from Uganda in 1972, I mean, if only people knew their own history, you know, you have the Huguenots went through hell mm -hmm. when they came and plays were written about these awful people and their houses were burnt down 
and then they backed the Bank of England and never looked back, and you've had the Jewish story and the Ugandan Asian story, and we even have a Ugandan Asian MP now, a kind of political dominatrix, who um, is more anti-immigrant than the right of the party. How does this happen? You know, how do you, how do, you do this? That In the same language. So there was a move, I think, I can't remember, who said, we will all now use the word about us. I'm a migrant. I am a migrant. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing to be. It's not a thing I would have preferred to be, but that's what I am. And I think you're right that you neutralize. Um, yeah. And, and I, that needs to happen. Okay. Speaking as the son of a migrant, the person at the back, we're running out of time, so try and run up. Go on, keep going. That's it. Run Put up. your hand up. Go on, run. Put your hand up. Put the lady on to answer the question. Keep your hand up. That's it. <laughs> As your chum said, Mr. Snow said, you know, something must be done. Is it your job to tell? No, there's no role for the media in conflict resolution. There's a role for the media in trying to find out what is going on and to tell it accurately. But I have been wrong far too many times for anybody to trust me on policy or conflict resolution. I'm not bad at figuring out what's going on and telling you. But I think you better leave it at that. Anybody else? I think we, we can do the best we can to. Um, not that, I mean, I'm not saying it's an agenda, but um, uh, I think mean, the biggest, the biggest problem currently, I think, within the Middle East is what Reddy's up to. Um, so we can do our best to support our activities, but we can't actually single Reddy out for the particular special attention. Yeah. But we can only report on what we're doing. Although well, you've got a special role where you uh, are able to... Uh, yeah, I am able to... I'm a columnist, and I do think that sometimes... I mean, Vietnam has been mentioned, and I'm old enough to remember some of those extraordinary images, and it changed public support for the war, which, in the end, ended the war. I make, I'm doing it very simply, but something happened to the American psyche when these images were being shown on their screens and appearing. And, and John Pilger made a very good program many, many years ago. 
about the effect of that imagery on the American public and how that did change the course of history. So I don't think we should be quite so modest. I think but what we... we might do, but I mean, propaganda is a dangerous thing. No, no, it's propaganda. not a propaganda. No, no. But it doesn't end there, does it? When, when that little child's body was found yeah. and we all wrote about it or the picture appeared and everybody talked about it, the government did have to respond to the public. Well, I agree with you, but I'm anxious about... I'm anxious I, I like to tell a story because it's true, not because I'm second-guessing what impact it might have. I think that my job is, you know, to try and tell the truth as I see it. But the moment I start trying to have an impact, you might think that I'm a good person. But some people might think I'm a very bad person. But my, I think my job is to say to people in power, look... You must do something. So that's also what? another... That the role of a, a columnist is different from the role of the reporter. <laughs> Thank God we have that, right. that push still available to us. Yeah. We're running out of time. We're running out of time, but... No, you've got one, Paul. Uh, where should we dive in? There's, has anybody got a really brilliant question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the questions They've been great so far. <laughs> Can we take this lady here in the red shirt? She claims to have a really brilliant question. <laughs> no pressure, no, that's fine. <laughs> Come on, it's going to be quick now. Just shout, just shout into it, it's turned on. That is a brilliant question, and it, because it, we were talking about this incredible issue, but is there a sense, everyone, that everything is a crisis now? Everything is a, a disaster now? Have we all just gone hysterical? <laughs> In the run-up to the election last year, um, I, I went to a lot of places and spoke to a lot of um, Labour voters who were going to vote UKIP, which no one believed was going to happen, but... yeah. Obviously it did. Um, and what was interesting about um, uh, not just the Labour voters who are voting UKIP, but the, you know, the people in the market squares and all of that who, who voiced um, expressions of opinion against migrants, against them, against the other, was they often came, unlike your Lincolnshire example, from places where there were hardly any migrants, um, for want of a better word. And um, what I found interesting in places like Boston and Lincolnshire, where there's a huge... Eastern European population, and where it undoubtedly is having an impact on the provision of healthcare and, and housing and, and all such there, because simply the social services hasn't kept up with the demographic change, um, regardless of where people are coming from, um, is that um, actually the, the people are much more plugged into um, the other, and they've thought about it much more, and maybe in Boston, you know, there is quite a lot of racism against Poles, and yet they're also inclined to say, 
that lot, the Syrians, they're really suffering. We ought to be doing more to help them. Um, really? So, uh, yeah, I, I found that. I found that people were sort of much more engaged in those areas and in the places which, which were much more homogenised, they were um, much more about, oh, we don't want anybody in from outside. Um, and so I think you're right. I think there, there, there is, um, a, uh, in, in many places, there are people who are extremely worried about the future of this country um, and indeed I mentioned Europe I, I was working there for four years until a year ago um, and, and across a lot of Europe people are worried about their societies they're worried about their countries and primarily I think because of the economic um, situation um, also because of what has happened since 9-11 I think there's been a lot of talk of the other and politicians are fed off on that like I said at the beginning so, so, um, so I think you're onto something and Lindsay said at the beginning we should, you know, we should do a lot more talking to the people who are afraid um, and to ask them why they're afraid and to dig down into that. And actually, that's, you know, that's the other side of this, quote, crisis, isn't it? Yes, Politics of fear. Politics of fear has always been with media. us, though. Right. It was full employment in, 1960, in the 60s. And you had the same panic when black people were coming from the Caribbean. You know, exactly. There's a, it's human nature. You see it in South Africa with Zimbabweans going to South Africa, the same thing. But where I think it, it's very complicated now is that there is a, a wedge of European society, the children of migrants, who have turned against the nations into which they were born. And very hardline Islam uh, coming in. And those things are creating, and I can think quite reasonably the fear of, of what is happening here, who are we, you know, these fully veiled women walking amongst us and so on. I don't, I, I'm not justifying any form of prejudice, but I can understand why there is a particularly deep fear at the moment, which is not just economics, but cultural, and yeah. justifiable in some ways. Okay. And is, Rosalind, is it all the fault of, you know, the internet and social media that is making people even more... Febrile and yeah. I don't, no, I don't think the internet's to blame for that. No. I just think, <laughs> so sorry. We could you. just turn it off. You see, that was the problem. Just turn it off. No, um, I just my just to go back to my original point. And my only my main concern is that uh, the far right or right wing or you know whatever they they are in my view owning the conversation, especially the last few months on social media when it comes to. Um, as we say, the other, you know, the refugee crisis or whatever the latest thing is. And it's, it's concerning to see, um, you know, the, our sort of outlets not reaching those audiences in the same way. And I don't know the solution to that right now, but, I, you know, we keep trying and keep reaching these people that we say that we're not doing enough to talk to. And I don't know the solution to that, but that is a big concern. And that is, I think, the biggest challenge right now is trying to reach... Uh, these people on the means and the ways that they're communicating online because that is yeah. where their information is coming from. So, and so it gives you that chance to talk to people where they are rather than Absolutely. where you hope they'll be. Yeah. Will? Because I'm going to end with Lindsay uh, and this. So, uh, Fear. Is it all just, are we just um, mad about everything? Uh, and is the media making it worse? <laughs> the problem, well, um, the way I'm always approached is that people are going to read Daily Mail or read the Daily Mail. Um, and I've always thought, well, in the way, way I think what I've done, many of us here have done, um, and doing right now, I've probably contributed to convert it to the gallery. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's our duty, almost like, like, almost like a, almost, yeah, as a form of service to the people 
because um, that, that's normally the journalism that we're not, we're not here to help, we're here to sort of report. And you should take from that what you can take from that. Okay. In a second, we're going to finish. But I, always, I used to be a programme editor at Channel 4 News, and I always did what Lindsay Hilson told me to. And <laughs> the floor is yours, Lindsay. <laughs> Poetry, please. James Fenton was a, a brilliant correspondent in Southeast Asia at the time of Cambodia and so on. Now he's a poet. And I think this poem says everything that we as journalists want to say. It's called Wind. This is the wind, the wind in a field of corn. Great crowds are fleeing from a major disaster. Down the long valleys, the green swaying wadis, down through the beautiful catastrophe of wind. Families, tribes, nations and their livestock have heard something, seen something. An expectation or a gigantic misunderstanding has swept over the hilltop, bending the ear of the hedgerow with stories of fire and sword. I saw a thousand years pass in two seconds. Land was lost, languages rose and divided. This lord went east and found safety. His brother sought Africa in a dish of amyl. Centuries, minutes later, one might ask how the hilt of a sword wandered so far from the smithy. And somewhere they will sing, like chaff we were born in the wind. This is the wind in a field of corn. We don't often get poetry read at the LSE, but uh, I think you'd agree that was fantastic. I also want to thank you all for those fantastic questions. Thank you for being here. But most of all, thank you to this extraordinarily fantastic panel. Please, thank you.